But let's uh, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 9, and I want to read from verses 18 through 34. Matthew 9, 18 to 34. While you're turning there, I'll just mention one more thing. I'm announcing today my candidacy for President of the United States. I have one platform item, one legislative agenda. My goal, sole goal, is to end daylight savings time. That's my only legislative agenda. Once I accomplish that, I'll resign. So um, feel free to write me in on Tuesday if you want to. So one platform. Matthew 9, verse 18. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then... A woman who had been subject for bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we do think of our nation. We plead with you that you would show us mercy in the week that is to come. Lord, uh, grant that we might um, serve our country well this week by our confidence in you, our faithfulness to love our neighbors, our uh, diligence in prayer. Lord, we are concerned about um, election results and how our fellow citizens will respond with fear or anger or frustration Lord, I do pray that in our homes and at work and on Facebook that we would be peacemakers, that we would be those who bring calm, those who soothe the fears of the worried and those who calm the um, rage of the angry. Keep us from joining in, Father. Our confidence is in you. And I do pray that you would make us um, gentle and um, courageous representatives of you during what might be a, a difficult week. 
We pray that you would give us a government uh, in line with your mercy and not in line with what we deserve. Lord, um, as we have your word open before us in this moment, in the time that we have, uh, it, is, it is a light for our path, it's a lamp for us, it's truth, and I pray that you would sanctify us by your truth today. Make us love the Lord Jesus and live like the Lord Jesus more this morning as a result of this reading of, uh, of your word. Uh, grant me the energy, the clarity of thought and mind and skill in speaking well and explaining these truths. Guard me from saying things that are unhelpful to these dear brothers and sisters. And I pray that um, you would, by your spirit, open our eyes and our ears that we might see wonderful things in your word that would comfort, encourage, correct, and train us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. We struggle sometimes, we who are followers of Jesus, we struggle to describe the age that is to come well. It's a foreign country that we have heard about, but none of us have visited, and we don't describe it very well. When the Lord Jesus returns and he makes all things new, what is it going to be like? Part of our problem is that we struggle to imagine what all of those good, all of that goodness is going to be like without it being boring. Uh, you know, the image that many people have of, of heaven is that when you die, you become an angel and you're assigned a cloud and given a harp and that's what eternity is going to be like. And that sounds dull to me, very dull. How do we describe, we have a hard time thinking about what all that goodness is going to be like, and then we struggle too because uh, in our best stories, there's always a villain, there's always conflict of some kind. What's it going to be like when the Lord Jesus is reigning and there is no evil? How is that plot going to be interesting? Uh, it, it's kind of like uh, what some people have described as the Superman problem. Have you ever heard of the Superman problem? The Superman problem is, how do you write good stories about Superman? Because Superman is so good and so strong, what enemy could he possibly face that would be interesting, that, that wouldn't just ta uh, cower before his invincibility? The Superman problem. Well, there are, have been two men in uh, church history, well, more than at least two, but I'm thinking of two men who lived in the 20th century who were pretty good at describing the age to come, maybe because they had epic imaginations and wrote epic myths. I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, at the end of uh, Lord of the Rings, there is this scene that takes place with the return of Gandalf the Wizard. Gandalf the Wizard has died, and he has now returned, and there's this scene where Sam is talking to him, and this is the conversation. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the, the world a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land, and as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Lewis uh, writes well, of course, at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, picturing this age to come in that great epic story. But I want to share with you a quote from his book, The Great Divorce. Look what he said. 
Some mortals say of some temporary suffering, temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Someday, brothers and sisters, you're going to wake up and this world will be, be, as it were, a bad dream. Not that it's not real, but you'll wake up to real reality, permanent reality that will be suffused with the goodness and the glory of the Lord Jesus. We, we struggle to think about how good and wonderful that day is going to be. To help us, the Apostle Matthew recorded these accounts, these um, scenes from the life of the Lord Jesus that are a foretaste of the glory to come. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus, uh, Matthew said that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And here in Matthew 9, he is pushing back against some of the terrible effects that sin has wrought in this world. Matthew wrote this because he knew his readers his original readers, and his 21st century readers, Matthew knew his readers would struggle with doubt. His original readers, probably predominantly Jewish Christians, would struggle because Matthew has made this strong case that Jesus is the Messiah. Actually, they believe that. They're already followers of Jesus. But he has affirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. But that would lead to an obvious question. The Old Testament, when it promises that a deliverer is going to come, that God's anointed one is going to come, doesn't just promise a person. It promises a new age, a whole new world. And Jesus, uh, Matthew's original readers would be wondering, if Jesus is the king, where's the kingdom? If he really is God's Messiah, where is this kingdom that he's supposed to bring? Now, we as 21st century readers might not necessarily be thinking in terms of, of kingdom, but we still have questions. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the deliverer. Then where is the deliverance? Where is the healing? Why, why are there still so many obstacles in my life to a life of peace? Here's a foretaste of that age to come in Matthew 9. And Matthew wrote it to encourage you who are followers of Jesus to hang on. Hang on. This age is coming. Here's a foretaste of it. I want to walk through this passage, uh, and we're going to talk about a couple things, two different headings for our time in this passage of Scripture. We're going to talk first, about, first of all about Jesus' credentials. We're going to talk first about Jesus' credentials. Life is full of suffering, but it does not mean that Jesus is not who he said he is. So we'll talk about his credentials and how these miracles help us see that. And then secondly, we're going to talk about your response. What do we do in response to Jesus? If these are his credentials, what do we do about it? Let's start by talking about Jesus' credentials. I've said this before. You've heard me say it multiple times. There are 10 miracles in Matthew 8 and 9. 10 miracles. So a leper is cleansed from his leprosy. A Roman centurion's servant is raised from his sickbed. Peter's mother-in-law gets up from a fever. The storm is calmed. Two demon-possessed men have the demons cast out. There's a paralytic man who's forgiven for his sins and walks. Uh, Jesus raises a dead uh, girl from the dead. He stops the bleeding of a woman. He gives sight to two blind men, and he casts a demon out of a mute man. Ten healing uh, miracles. Miracles. 
And the point, the reason that Matthew recorded all of those accounts, one after the other, after the other, after the other here, is to prove and remind us that Jesus is God's Messiah. I know that's Matthew's point because he tells us that's his point in Matthew 11. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has been put in prison and he's struggling. He's struggling. If Jesus is the Messiah and I am his forerunner, why am I in prison? If you've ever asked, why do bad things happen to God's people? You and John the Baptist have something in common. So Matthew 11 tells us that this conversation. So look what it says, Matthew 11, 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one to come, who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, now look at this list. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Everything he lists in Matthew chapter 11 are things that he has described in Matthew 8 and 9. Matthew's point in telling us these accounts is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's king. Now, there's a couple more verses that I want to show you that are specifically relate to these miracles. One of them is Isaiah 35.5. Look at this. Uh, Isaiah 35 is describing what happens when God comes. When he comes, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 29 says something similar. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Both of these passages refer to blind eyes seeing. <coughs> In the entire 39 books of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, there is not one miracle of someone who is blind having their sight restored. And in the, gospel of, in the book of Acts and the rest of the epistles, there is not one account, no record of anyone having their sight restored except for the apostle Paul, but we'll leave him aside for now. All of the healing miracles of giving sight to the blind happen in the gospels and they're done by the Lord Jesus. It is as if Matthew is saying to you, reader, do you see what the blind see? Can you see as well as the blind who Jesus is? Now, let's talk specifically about the, the, the people in, in this particular account. We start with a synagogue leader. Here he comes to Jesus with a desperate situation. His daughter has just died. The other gospel accounts are longer. Uh, many of them are longer than Matthew's. And they tell us, Mark and Luke tell us this man's name was Jairus. And his, girl, his daughter was 12 years old. And the text says, Matthew says, my daughter has just died. That phrase, just died, is not as specific in Greek, the original language as our English is. Um, it, it can mean more, more broadly, uh, she's on the point of death. She's on her deathbed. She's on the verge of death. There's, um, we have phrases we use to describe someone in this situation. You would never say this to a father who has a 12-year-old daughter in this condition, but you, you could describe her by saying, she's all but dead, or she's a goner. Okay, don't say that to a grieving father. But, but that would, would be what he's saying. Come, Lord Jesus, help me, help me. It's not hard to enter into his grief. You can imagine what this would be like. Uh, Martin Luther had a daughter. Well, yesterday was Reformation Day. Uh, we celebrate Martin Luther and his courage in beginning the Protestant Reformation. 
launching it. And uh, he, uh, after that day in 1517, he eventually got married and had children. He had a daughter named Magdalena. He named her Mary, uh, Magdalena in honor of Mary Magdalene. He was uh, honoring uh, that uh, saint from the scriptures. And when Magdalena was 14 years old, she got very sick and died. And Luther was heartbroken. It just devastated him. Look what he wrote um, in a letter to a friend. I and my wife should joyfully give thanks for such a felicitous departure and blessed end by which Magdalena escaped the power of the flesh, the world, the Turk, and the devil. Martin Luther never said anything uninterestingly. And look, he's, we, should, we should be thankful for how she died. She died in our home, in our care. As a follower of Jesus, we should be thankful for this end of her life. Yet, yet the force of our natural love is so great that we are unable to do this without crying and grieving in our hearts or even without experiencing death ourselves. The features, the words, and the movements of the living and dying daughter remain deeply engraved in our hearts. Look at this. Here's this man. He's a follower of Jesus. He's a pastor. He's a leader, a theologian. And he says, even the death of Christ is unable to take this all away as it should. Even the good news about Jesus is not consolation enough to heal my broken heart. And this man comes to Jesus for help with his daughter. Please come. If you come and put your hand on her, she will live. Please come. Jesus gets up and goes immediately, but they're interrupted. They're interrupted by this woman who has a bleeding problem. In all the gospel accounts, these two stories are put together, uh, the, the bleeding woman and the dying daughter. They're, all, they're always together. Uh, the gospel writers want you to think and compare the two of them. Um, she has a chronic problem 12 years. Interesting, the girl is 12 years old. This woman has a bleeding problem for 12 years. Uh, it's not life-threatening, but it's a chronic problem. And beyond just the physical problem of it, the anemia that results from it, just the problems that she has physically, there is also um, a, a, a spiritual problem. This is She has ritual impurity. She can't worship, she can't touch other people, she is uh, ritually impure. Now, the impurity laws in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus and in the Gospels are often very confusing to us. We read them and we think, what, why, what did God, what's the point here? What is God trying to do? What's he trying to teach us? What's he trying to accomplish? Uh, uh, why, why the things that he picked to make us impure? Uh, they seem arbitrary. They seem strange. Why, why these natural processes, why do they cut us off from God and other people? I listened to an interview not too long ago with a theologian named Matthew Thiessen, and I learned an awful lot about these ritual impurity laws. These ritual impurity laws, we have to be careful. They're not issues having to deal with hygiene. That's not the concern. And it's not morality. If, if you think of holiness versus sin, that is a different category than purity versus impurity or clean versus unclean. They're different categories. Uh, and... Um, uh, being unclean or being impure means that you can't go into, though, holy spaces. There's basically three reasons why a person would be unclean or be impure. Uh, first, if you had contact with a corpse or if you were a corpse. 
All right. So if you were, uh, if you had contact with a corpse, if you had a skin condition of some kind, we often we use the term leprosy, not just leprosy, but eczema, a rash of some kind, some sort of skin condition. You were in uh, impure, ritually impure or unclean. And third, like this woman here, genital emissions. Those three things make you unclean. Why? Because, as best we can tell, those are signs of mortality, signs of human mortality. Human beings get sick, human beings die, human beings are born and die. We are mortal creatures. And the reason having one of these signs of mortality evident in your body makes you impure is because God's holiness is so full of life that it is dangerous for those bearing the signs of death to go into holy places. God is so holy, and if you are in a significant way bearing these signs of mortality, he's so holy, so full of life, if you have these signs of mortality, being in his presence is dangerous. So to protect you, if you are ritually impure, you cannot go into holy places. And if you touch someone else and you're ritually impure, your impurity uh, is contagious. They will be impure too and can't go into holy places. But here comes this woman, and she comes to touch Jesus. Jesus purifies the impure. He is not made impure by the impure. Seems like she has a little bit of superstition here in her faith. If I I have the magical touch and I magically touch his cloak, then I'll be healed. We're going to talk about her superstition, uh, her superstitious faith in a little bit. But remember, Jesus' credentials, that's what we're looking at. Jesus is the one who restores, who heals, who renews, who purifies. He takes people who are outsiders and he makes them insiders. He takes the ineligible and he makes them eligible. He takes the dirty and he makes them clean. He, makes, he takes the polluted and he makes them pure. He takes the broken and he makes them whole. The Lord Jesus Christ is not intimidated. He is not overwhelmed. He is not undone by your brokenness and by your sin. There is not a person on the planet who is ineligible to come to the Lord Jesus for healing and forgiveness and life. He will welcome all who come. Now, after this woman is healed, they, they go uh, enter the synagogue leader's house in verse 23. And by this time, if she wasn't dead when he first, uh, the father first came to Jesus, he, she is dead now, definitely dead, holy, 100% dead. We know that because they've hired mourners. Even poor families, the synagogue leader was probably not poor, but even uh, poor families had to hire mourners, professional mourners, if someone died. At least two flute players and one wailing woman. Which, if you're looking for a job, I highly recommend being a wailing woman. The pay is great. So, um, anyway, the mourners are there. They've hired these people. And Jesus says this odd thing. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And they laugh at him. They're paid professionals. They're not really sad. They're just here as paid professionals. And they know she's dead. Why does he say she's sleeping? Because he's going to wake her up. Because Jesus is the master of death, and he has the power to wake her up. For any follower of Jesus, death is but sleep, because Jesus is going to wake us up. 
when Magdalena Luther died, uh, the carpenters came and they, were pound, uh, they put her into the coffin. And as they were nailing the lid shut, Martin Luther shouted at them, Hammer away, hammer away, for on the last day she shall rise again. Every follower of Jesus who's put into the ground, the Lord Jesus is coming back to wake up. He's the master of death. Then after that, Jesus meets these blind men and they say to him, verse 27, have mercy on us, son of David. The term son of David, well, we saw it for the first time in Matthew 1.1. Here's the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The people in the Gospels who call Jesus son of David most often are the blind. Can you see Jesus like the blind see Jesus? They, they call out to him, and Jesus goes into a house, and they follow him. I don't know why he didn't respond immediately. He went with the Father immediately, but... To these blind men, he walked inside. Remember that in all, uh, many of the miracle stories in the Gospels, there is an obstacle that happens, something that gets in the way, an obstacle of some kind. Uh, do they have persevering faith as they follow Jesus? And, and here the blind men go. They, they follow him in. Uh, do you think I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. And he touches them and heals them. There's a lot of touching in this passage. Jesus... Um, uh, touches the girl, raises her from the dead. The, the, the bleeding woman touches Jesus, and now Jesus touches the blind men. There's this, uh, it's, a, it's a reminder of Jesus' compassion, his mercy. Uh, Jesus is a hugger. I'm not a hugger. I'm working on it, but Jesus is a hugger. Then Jesus meets these, uh, this man, a demon-possessed man, is brought to him. And the demon that has possessing him uh, makes him mute, won't, won't allow him to speak. There's not a lot of details about this. Jesus casts out the demon and the mute man speaks. Frederick Bruner says here we have another miracle of community. Jesus takes people with afflictions that cut them off because they're blind, they can't speak, they have bleeding problems, they're cut off from the community, and by healing them, Jesus restores them to fellowship. The church of Jesus Christ is the fellowship of restored people, broken people that he has made whole. Jesus, John wants to know, Jesus, are you the one to come or should we wait for somebody else? Oh, John, look, the blind see, the dead are raised, the lepers are cleansed, the, uh, the mute speak. Yes, yes, Jesus is the one that God promised. Now, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to respond? And the gospel writers want to encourage you. Let's talk about your response now. First of all, we should recognize that a response, a positive response to Jesus is not certain. Look at what verses 33 and verse 34 say, how we compare these two verses. Verse 33 says, the crowd in the middle, the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. This is the highest acclaim that Jesus received so far in the Gospel of Matthew. Look at who he is. Moses did miracles. Elijah did miracles. Elisha did miracles. But no, we have not seen anybody like this. This is amazing. Jesus is unlike anyone who has walked the planet, walked on the planet. 
That's followed immediately by verse 34, which is up to this point in time in the Gospel of Matthew, the highest denunciation of Jesus, the most severe rejection of him. So you have the greatest statement of awe followed by this greatest statement of rejection. They said, it's the Pharisees, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Uh, What's astounding here, of course, is that the book of Matthew is going to end with this being the majority opinion, that Jesus is not the Messiah. If you're a follower of Jesus, be prepared. Matthew warns us, you are going to be in the minority in this world. There there is not a majority of followers of Jesus at your school. There's not a majority of followers of Jesus in your neighborhood. Most of the people who live in the United States are not followers of Jesus. There's not, there, we are a minority group, a minority people within the spheres in which we live and work. The, in the Gospel of Matthew, they reject Jesus because it's too incredible for them to contemplate. How can, how can Jesus be the Messiah and yet be crucified? How can that be? That seems impossible that, that Jesus could be God's servant and be crucified. That makes no sense. It was too incredible. I know people who reject Jesus these days still in credulity over Jesus because, well, not over him, They don't believe in Jesus because they find it too incredible to believe that they need a savior like Jesus. That their spiritual condition would be so bad before God that they would require somebody to die on the cross for them. That's just too incredible for them to contemplate. That can't be true. It can't be true that I'm that bad that I need a savior to die for my sins on the cross. I have a good friend who uh, I once, once said to me, uh, we were, as a family discussion, actually, um, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. My mother told me I'm a good person. I don't need a savior like Jesus because I'm a good person. How different that is from the Bible's assessment of us. So this response to Jesus, you would think, you would think that people who had seen this with their own eyes would believe. No. Matthew has, though, commends to us two things. He commends, first of all, that we believe in response to who Jesus is that we believe. Faith is a key ingredient in this passage. Remember, the father demonstrated, if you come and touch my daughter, she'll live. And the blind men, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, I believe that you're able to do this. Think about some of the past scenes when the paralytic man is brought to Jesus. Jesus sees their friends, the faith of his friends, it says. When he saw their faith, he spoke to to the man. Or the leper who first came to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. These people come in faith to Jesus and he responds. And, and yet there's this superstitious faith of this woman to whom Jesus shows kindness. Her faith surely is imperfect. Jesus gently corrects it. Verse 22, he says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. She'd been thinking, if I just touch him. No, 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 no. There's no magic going on here, no magic touch. It's your faith. You have come to me. Your faith has healed you. Take heart. Be courageous. Have courage, Jesus. 
Um, Jesus, uh, Jesus says, have courage, daughter, he says. It's the same thing that he said back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2 to the, the paralytic man. He, Jesus says, take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. Take heart, son. He could have said the same thing to the disciples. They were in the boat, freaking out. That's what the original Greek says. During the storm, they were freaking out. And Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Take heart. Have courage. Some of you need to hear the word from the Lord Jesus. Take heart. Take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. There's strong faith in this passage. There's weak faith in this passage. There's exemplary faith. There's suspicious faith. And to all of them, all of those who come to him, the Lord Jesus responds by meeting their needs and healing them and showing them kindness. You might think about it this way. Uh, imagine yourself in an old-time country store. There you are, you walk into the country store and you see on the shelf a, a big jar and in the jar lollipops and a little tag on the jar that says 25 cents. And a little boy walks in as you're standing there and he plops down on the counter a quarter and says, I'd like a lollipop. And the store owner takes the lid off the jar and hands it, here you go, enjoy that. And that little boy leaves very happy. A few minutes later, another child comes in, plops down a quarter, and uh, gets the lollipop, same procedure, and wa she, uh, she walks out, and uh, everybody smiles. Then, to your amazement, uh, a little boy comes in, and he plops down on the quarter, corner, counter, two dimes. Says, I'd like a lollipop, please. The store owner looks at him and smiles, takes the lid off the jar, hands him a lollipop and says, here you go, enjoy that. And he walks out with a smile on his face. The next thing you know, a little boy comes in and puts down a nickel, a nickel on the, the counter. I'd like a lollipop, please. Out comes the lollipop. Have a great day. And the kid leaves smiling. You watch for about 35 minutes and see what looks like a dozen kids come in. Some of them bring quarters. Some of them bring dimes. Some kid brought a button and put it on the counter and said, I'd like a lollipop, please. And every single one of those child, children walked out with a lollipop. After about 35 minutes, you look at the store owner and you say, you are the worst businessman in the world. And the store owner says, ah, but you missed the point. The point is that they're coming to me with what they have, and I won't send anyone away without what they need. In the Gospel of Matthew, there is a man with 25-cent faith. He's a Roman centurion, and he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, my servant is ill, and, and say the word, and he'll be healed. And Jesus is amazed. I have never seen such faith in all of Israel. He's got at least 25 cents worth of faith. How much faith do you suppose this woman has? Is it a nickel or a dime, a couple pennies? The disciples barely have buttons when they're in that boat, right? But the point is they know their need and it's focused on the Lord Jesus to meet it. So bring what you have to him. Set on the counter of the Lord Jesus what you have and he will meet your daily needs. Believe, then, third, obey, or last, obey. 
I want to think about these blind men. So Matthew is commending to us a life of following Jesus, trusting in him, and now obeying him. And I want to think about these blind men. After Jesus had touched them and healed them, he said to them, don't tell anybody about this. Now, Jesus offered this warning on occasion. He didn't do it always. Uh, he did it for various reasons at different times, different reasons. Um, maybe uh, in this instance, Jesus wanted to be able to introduce himself as the Messiah to this region and not have these two former blind guys do it. I, he just doesn't have a lot of confidence that they're going to get the story right. I think that's what's happening here, at least. So he says, don't tell anybody about this. Now, how, how well would you be able to obey this command if you were blind and Jesus gave you sight? How well would you do it not telling people about it? <laughs> I would not do well, right? Oh, look what happened to me. I can see, I can see, right? I mean, there's people that would, you would have to tell, right? Your family members and there'd be friends, people in the village. But these guys seem to go overboard a little bit. They went over all that region. The news spread. They told everybody they possibly could. Why? Why did they do that? Maybe they think that Jesus isn't a very good PR man and he needs some help. Right? I mean, they're just trying to serve Jesus, right? Except, except Jesus had told us, he tells us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that discipleship, making disciples, means teaching people to obey everything he has commanded. And there's something jarring about this, isn't there? These two blind men have enough faith. They believe that Jesus can heal their blindness, but their faith does not extend into obedience, to obeying his word. And there's something just not right about that. You just, you just feel it. It's like, it's like a popcorn kernel that's stuck between your teeth. It just aggravates. These blind guys, they, they healed men. They, they just didn't listen. They didn't obey. There's something out of place in someone who turns and trusts in Jesus who will not listen to what he says. In light of who he is, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of what Jesus has said, we believe and we obey, we hang on, we hang on in anticipation of that age to come. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today. We are thankful to you for what you have done, this great work that you did in the lives of these people. We, we re rejoice with them. Some of us, we have physical challenges, and we look at the, these accounts, and they encourage us. We rejoice with those who rejoice. This is good news that we see, and though it increases our longing our longing that the Lord Jesus would return and bring healing to our lives too. Those of us with physical calamities, those of us with um, mental afflictions, those of us with relational brokenness, we are, we are grateful to you, Father, that the Lord Jesus is the one who makes all things new. And I pray that you would accomplish the purpose for which you wrote this word and that you would enable us to hang on, to hang on to the Lord Jesus until that day when he returns and makes all things new. Help us to encourage one another in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.